is a time when magic is more powerful than science, and only those who control the magic control destiny. They are the visionaries. Radio Drome. Alright, this is going to be a little bit different from a normal Radio Drome episode. That's why it's going to be listed as a Radio Drome special. I'm going to be talking to Buzz Dixon. You may not be familiar with that name, but you're definitely familiar with this man's work. He He's written for TV shows such as G.I. Joe, Transformers, Thundar, Gem, and Humanoids. Tiny Toons, He-Man, Visionaries, My Little Pony, etc., etc. This man helped shape my childhood. If you grew up on 80s cartoons, whether you grew up in the 80s or you watched them later in the 90s or even on some of the channels like The Hub and Boomerang now, you grew up watching Buzz Dixon. And he's also a comic book writer. He's a role-playing game creator. He, he, this Buzz Dixon was a fascinating interview. This is going to go on with him and I talking for a little bit more than an hour. And I cut that down from the nearly two hours we spent talking together, me asking him questions. And you'll be able to hear just how much he he truly enjoyed what he did. And I, I think he created a huge, huge influence that is still being felt today in, in the area of cartoons, comics, and writing. As I tell him in the interview, I didn't learn my life lessons from my mom or from a police officer. I learned them from Optimus Prime, Duke, and Thundar. So here it is, over an hour of Buzz Dixon and I reminiscing about his career and some of the behind-the-scenes nonsense that just doesn't, I hope, doesn't happen anymore. But this also will give you a really, really nice insight into what it was like working in, especially first-run syndication, but in 80s cartoons. First of all, Mr. Dixon, do you realize just how many kids you helped raise with all of the shows that you worked on? I'm always shocked when I find people coming to me and and saying how much of an impact that we had made back then on their lives. I have no idea of the exact number. I just know that, that we apparently resonated very deeply with a great many people. And I'm very I'm very grateful for that. I've told people that, you know, when I was in science fiction fandom in the 1960s, I would I would read about the EC Comics bullpen. And I always thought to myself, boy, I'd love to be part of something like that, part of a cool, creative group that does something that gets remembered decades later. Son of a gun. I, I got to be part of something like that. So I'm very uh, I'm very pleased and happy when I hear people uh, tell me they like the work we did. Well, I've said this on the show before. I didn't learn my life lessons from my parents or from teachers. I learned it from Duke and Optimus Prime. <laughs> well, you you uh, 
you you put your faith in uh, in uh, dubious hands, but thank you. <laughs> I I appreciate that, and I can I can tell you that the other people who worked on the shows with us uh, would appreciate it too. But I don't think, and this may be the reason why it resonated so well. I don't think any of us came into this saying we are going to uh, you know set the tone for you know anything for the future we came into this saying what is the most entertaining and intelligent story that we can we can tell today and that's what we tried to do we tried to do something we basically asked ourselves if if we were our target audience what would we want to see and we wrote stories like that now that said you've you've got you've got a writing history of Thundar the Barbarian, Dungeons and Dragons, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and then you've also got Elvin and the Chipmunks and Scooby-Doo and Goldie Gold and Heathcliff. Was it a different experience writing for arguably the action shows than for the straight-out comedy shows? I'll, I'll say this. The, the primary, the biggest difference was between the network shows and the syndicated shows and particularly the first generation of syndicated shows. The network shows, we had censors breathing down our necks, you know, 24-7. I mean, just anything we did would be picked over with a fine-tooth comb and would be challenged and changed and whatnot. And as a result, we, we typically found our, you know, we had to pull our punches. We couldn't do all the things that we wanted to do. We couldn't say all the things we wanted to say. You know, because the network fiat would come down, no, kids won't understand this, kids won't understand that. And it would be it would be completely arbitrary. One show I worked on was Mighty Orbots, and we had a magnetic monster that is, you know, the, the heroes have to defeat. The guy at the network said, have them throw them into a glacier. And we said, well, you know, that actually is not a good idea with a magnetic monster. That only makes the magnetism more intense. Why don't we throw him into a volcano because heat destroys magnetism? No, I want a, I want a glacier. And it's like, well, it's not going to make any difference in the animation. It's the same amount of paint and the same amount of, you know, effort to make it a volcano as it is to make it a glacier. Red versus white, huh? Exactly, yeah. And it, and And one is scientifically accurate and the other isn't network person just would not budge on that just absolutely insisted to prove that you know he could get whatever he wanted and and you know shoved it in and we would have you know bizarre censorship issues i mean they would they would come back with um you know they they would pick up on stuff that wasn't there and they would you know miss stuff that was there and it was just it was just bizarre and when we we started doing the syndicated shows when syndication first took off Everybody came in to um, Transformers into G.I. Joe, and the first episode everybody did was just a wall-to-wall action slam fest. I mean, it was just finally getting the chance to do the action stuff you always wanted to do. And then the next script was, well, do I, do I have to do that again? Can I do something different? And the network, I mean, not the networks, but the, the, uh, the toy companies their attitude was, we just want kids to watch the show every day. As long as you can keep their attention, we pretty much don't care how you do it. And as a result, we had a tremendous amount of creative freedom. We had a tremendous amount of leeway. And we ended up doing, um, you know, better work than we were able to do for the networks because we didn't have that level of interference. Is that why, and I'm, you know, I know it might sound weird for people who are only picking up on G- the 80s G.I. Joe later, is that why G.I. Joe 
was a little more groundbreaking in, in, and I'll get to this more down the line, in some of the characterizations, but also in racism in one G.I. Joe episode, and I picked up on it too, where Dusty calls an Arab a camel jockey, which would absolutely not fly today. Did you have any problems with that kind of stuff, or was it just we, we you can't had, kill anyone? We had a biz- we had specifically that issue. It's interesting you bring it up because we had um, Casey Kasem walk out out of a recording session. We did, and I, I won't say who it was who wrote the script, Flint Dilly, but we did a Transformers where we had a parody of Muammar Gaddafi in it. And I mean, and it was a pretty over the top. I remember you know, that one. He, he, yeah. w- uh, it was season two. He was uh, sheltering some rogue Decepticons, wasn't he? Exactly. And it was just, it was an over the top parody. And it was not a slam against Arabs as a people. It was a slam against Muammar Gaddafi as Muammar Gaddafi. It could have just as easily been uh, uh, Kim Il Jung because I think he was the North Korean di- dictator at the time. It could have been, you know. Any dictator, any tin horn, you know, uh, Noriega, whoever. It just happened to be Momar. And uh, Casey Kasem, he's reading the script, and he says, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to participate in a script that denigrates Arabs. And he just got up and he walked out. And uh, so all of a sudden it's like, oops, uh, who here can do Casey's voices, you know? And we had to uh, we had to recast right there in the, uh, in the studio and uh, get somebody to do Casey's lines for him. There's a there was a thin line between what is something that this particular character would say and what is something that reflects the opinions of the people writing it or creating it. And sometimes you found like for me, uh, shipwreck. Shipwreck is my voice in in the G.I. Joe series. He's the character who can say the things that I'm thinking. Other people had characters that they gravitated towards that could could express things that they wanted. And sometimes you have a character who's just, you know, he's who that character is, is the type of person who would say this thing or that thing. And it may not be a nice thing. I mean, Shipwreck is is not a role model insofar as if you want to if you want to raise a good eagle scout you don't let him watch shipwreck okay you don't tell him do what shipwreck does if anything you say look at shipwreck and do exactly the opposite but that's the point i mean that's it, that gave us the ability to express different points of view and whatnot from different angles is is that why certain characters seem to get more mature treatment for, for instance my favorite character was mainframe and mm-hmm. I, I noticed there was a specific effort. I don't know if it would have been you or Flint or just an overall thing to make him more three-dimensional. Like in Arise, Sepentor Arise, he's the first G.I. Joe that ever mentions he has kids. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that same episode, he mentions the thousand-yard stare that he saw from guys in Nam. First time I ever heard Nam referenced on G.I. Joe. And then you guys went and gave him that very mature ongoing storyline with him and Zorana having that kind of Romeo and Juliet relationship. Is there a reason Mainframe arguably treated more maturely than the other characters? I would I would say this. As you're working with, with the characters, as you're playing with them, basically, you start to, to notice certain characters just flow in a certain direction. And there was a little more, for lack of a better word, there was a little more gravitas towards Mainframe. And it wasn't that he was necessarily created with that in mind but as we started using him we started going you know this character has seen a little more he's a little more mature he's got a little more depth to him 
going back to shipwreck, if you had shipwreck and mainframe in the same scene, shipwreck you're going to be paying attention to because shipwreck he's he's got you know he's he's in control he's 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 savvy he knows what he's doing and whatnot um mainframe excuse me excuse me mainframe knows what he's doing and whatnot shipwreck is the loose cannon you know shipwreck is the guy that mainframe would come into a situation and figure out what it is and figure out the logical way of handling it shipwreck would be the guy that comes in and and finds the weird thing that nobody anticipated being there. Did you have any pro- problem with the whole like bringing up real life wars such as mainframe's nom reference and the thousand yard stare? Cuz I'm going to guess a lot of kids probably didn't get that. Well, see, this is one of the thing this is one of the reasons I was brought onto the series by Steve Gerber. Steve and I had worked together on Thundar the Barbarian and other shows at Ruby Spears. And Steve had gone, had left Ruby Spears and went on, and he eventually ends up at Sunbow being the story editor in G.I. Joe. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here because the guys who did the first two um, miniseries, Ron Friedman, and I'm trying to remember the other person, but the very first G.I. Joe animated programs that were done, the miniseries, those guys knew absolutely nothing about the military. And it, it reflected in the show because they were doing – First of all, they were doing physically impossible stuff. They were having jets swoop down and slice tanks in half with their wingtips. And then they also had, you know, sergeants barking orders at colonels and things like this. And it it was just not the way the military operates. And Steve knew I had been in the Army for six years. He knew I had some military experience. So he asked me to come on, and I became the assistant story editor of the first season just because I could say, well, you know, they wouldn't do it that way. They wouldn't say it that way. They wouldn't express it. And I tried to bring a certain level of not realism, but uh, verisimilitude. I mean, just, just this patina of, well, it, it, it looks and sounds the way that the military looks and sounds. You, you know, when you peel it back, it's really, you know, it's a fantasy. But on the surface, it looks and sounds the way the military looks and sounds. This is something I think is what, and I'm not saying this to take a lot of credit, but I think the fact that we made that effort, that we tried to make it a little more of a touchstone in reality, is what helped the show resonate as well with the audiences as it did. We tried to get out all the the really dumb stuff that would never happen in a real-life military. We tried to get all the physical impossibilities out of it. We were not allowed to kill anybody, but we were allowed to injure people. And whenever I was story editing, I made sure that there was at least one, at least one of the Joe characters was seriously injured in every episode, because I just wanted kids to know this is not a walk in the park. This is not something that's, you know, a fun game that you can do. People get hurt. People suffer. I also snuck in references to casualties because the people at Hasbro didn't realize when the military refers to casualties, they're referring to living and dead, wounded and dead. And so I, I would have the Joes mention, well, we suffered 17% casualties and whatnot. Anybody who knew what that meant understood somebody got killed. You know, we just didn't see that person get killed. And, of course, that leads to the whole Duke dying in the movie thing. And then they, you know, freaked out and they had him come back to life and this and that and the other thing. But Yeah, because I seem to remember the line was, it cleaved his heart in two. And I'm like, yeah, that does not send you into a coma. That kills you. Exactly, yeah. 
I want to dip back to Thundar for a moment because there's something sure. I always loved and I've, I've always been curious whether this was a scripted thing or if the animator snuck it in. Mm-hmm. In the Treasure of the Mox episode, when they go, they walk past an old movie theater, it's playing Revenge of the Jedi instead of oh, Return yeah, yeah, of the yeah. Jedi. Was that in the script or was that just a, a, a that little was... screenshot of when that was animated? I, I think that was a screenshot of when it was animated because I think Revenge of the Jedi was the original title. Yeah, it, it was, and, but it uh, only lasted for like three months, so that's why I consider exactly. that like a snapshot. Exactly. I think that's pretty much what it was. I think it was a snapshot at the time, and we just we snuck that one in. I mean, when I say snuck it in, we just thought it would be a nice little um, you know background detail. And I could not tell you who put that in there. I don't know if if the writer of that particular episode put it in. Yeah, uh, and and we did um. We did a couple of references to, I think it was Slime Boy or something like that. I think we, we had a comic book that uh, Ookla was really fond of, Slime Boy or something like that. And uh, Yeah, we, we did a lot of pop culture references in there. We had a lot that we wanted to do that we couldn't do because, you know, the network would say, well, the kids don't understand it. And our response was they don't have to understand it. We just want to put it in. You know, you got to paint something in the background. Why don't we paint in something we'd like? No, no. Dungeons and Dragons had a lot of that too. Eric was constantly referring to American pop culture in Dungeons and Dragons too. Well, in Dungeons and Dragons, it was a little more conscious because we were we were aware of the impact that Dungeons and Dragons was having on on uh, the mainstream because Dungeons and Dragons was like Dungeons and Dragons and Star Trek are like two examples of stuff that started in the science fiction community. It suddenly leaped out, and all of a sudden it found people in the mainstream who not only were interested in it, but were interested enough in it to get involved in it. In science fiction movies and books and whatnot before Star Trek, there was obviously a very large mainstream audience because these people would go see the movies. But there was only a, there was a very small, dedicated, hardcore fandom that just obsessed about these things and wrote fanzine articles on them and showed up at conventions dressed like characters and whatnot. And Star Trek was the first one that broke out of the fandom corral, so to speak, and got out into the mainstream. And people people who were, were just mainstream fans who did not identify themselves as science fiction fans picked up on it. And it was the same thing with Dungeons and Dragons, because Dungeons and Dragons broke the the broke out of the what you would call the war game the war game fandom the people that you know would play these strategy games and whatnot and it became something else something different and it permeated the public consciousness so we were very aware that dungeons and dragons had broken out and as a result we were starting to make these pop culture references and since the kids came from from uh, 1980s america you know, it was only logical that they would be having these these pop culture references. Because, yeah, I remember one where Eric uh, calls a big fuzzy thing a Wookiee. Yeah, that, stuff like that would happen all the time. But that also kind of reflects the way that Dungeons & Dragons is played. Because, you know, yes, you can buy the, the pre-scripted you know scripted, uh, adventure modules and whatnot, but... The, really, the point of it is you want to get the rules and you want to get the monsters, and then you want to start inventing your own adventures. You want to start having your own uh, dungeon crawls and your own quests and encounter your own beasts and whatnot. 
And that, that was one of the things that helped it break out was that it, it was, it, it was as if somebody had discovered a way to play Monopoly where you could go over to a whole bunch of other streets and have a whole bunch of other things happening. You know, once you get the basic game down, then you can expand and do other things. And that's what appealed about Dungeons and Dragons. So absolutely, people would be improvising in their Dungeons and Dragons stories. And, and to have a character refer to uh, something they encounter as being like something they had seen in pop culture, that was that was entirely within the realm of the of the, the series. Now, speaking of pop culture and the crossing of pop culture, we have to talk about Hector Ramirez. <laughs> I'm gonna. Go, that's gonna be the thing that I'm going down in in the history books for when I die. My my uh, my obituary is gonna say Buzz Dixon, creator of Hector Ramirez. <laughs> well, because because he's really the link. I mean, there are other links, but you know, Hector Ramirez is the same character on GI Joe, Transformers. In humanoids and and gem, which yeah, were you intending that to arguably mean that all of these take place in the same universe? Like we would, yes, we we have backed into that. We are we are now saying they are they are all part of the same universe. We backed into it. We did not set out with that intent. I created the character Hector Ramirez for twenty questions, which was a um, kind of a precursor to uh, The Traitor, which was a, a two-parter that I did. And I, I basically needed a obnoxious news guy to come in and, and play off of the Joes and whatnot so that we could get involved in this, you know, adventure. Every time you create a character in, in television and in movies and whatnot, the character has to go to the legal department, and the legal department sees, does this character look like or does it resemble a person in real life? And you can get sued. In fact, uh, Todd McFarlane got sued when a, a hockey player named Tony Twist took offense that that McFarlane had named a gangster Tony Twist in one of his, his stories. And uh, the guy successfully sued McFarlane for uh, you know defamation of character. So when a character is created, what they want to do is they want to look and see is there anybody who could be mistaken for this person? Now, if there had actually been a, a Hector Ramirez who was a newspaper reporter or a TV reporter, even if he wasn't a national figure, they would have come back and said, you have to change the name because there is a reporter named Hector Ramirez. There wasn't a Hector Ramirez person involved in journalism. So they cleared Hector Ramirez. He was an obvious caricature of Geraldo Rivera. And so the the look we could get away with because we could say we are we are caricaturing a public person. The name we could get away with was because there was no Hector Ramirez involved in journalism that we could locate. Once the legal people had signed off on that character, whenever we needed to have a, a news reporter involved in a story. Well, we've got this guy that's already been checked off. Just use him again. And so we kind of backed into linking all of the various, you know, series together because whenever Transformers needed to have a, a reporter, well, use Hector. We've used him before. Jim, drop Hector in. You know, we, we know Hector is safe. He's been cleared already. Same thing with Inhumanoids. And the next thing we know, we go, oops, <laughs> we we unintentionally connected all four of our uh, we can in, in unintentionally connected four of our six 
you know, main universes here. We we were trying to get uh, a a uh, GI Joe Transformers My Little Ponies link going at one point, but we weren't able to pull that off. Well, with all of these connections, you, you said Hector was kind of an accidental back in. Yeah. Was was Marissa Fairborn an intentional one? I don't know enough about exactly how that character was created to be able to give you uh, an you know an accurate answer on that. I know as as yeah you have to remember when we were doing these series, we had eighty five episodes that um, excuse me strike that we had sixty five episodes for these series that had to be done. And we had to get them basically kick an episode out the door every day. So we're sitting there and we're just knocking the stuff out as fast as we possibly can. It's going over to Marvel Productions and they're storyboarding and animating as fast as they can. And because of that, we're starting to develop things. We're starting to get this interplay going. And we are beginning to see things in the stories and the characters and not just in each particular series, but crossing over from one series to the next, we see how we can do things and link things up and we get, you know, there's a cross pollination of ideas that are going on. And the people at Hasbro didn't pick up on that until after it had happened, because basically, you know, they're the generals and we're the guys in the trenches. By the time they realized that a lot of these things were happening, they were already built into the show at that point because we had seen it we had started incorporating it you know in in many cases to hasbro's surprise they found things going on not that they objected to but that they just had no idea that's where things were going until it was actually presented to them scheduling in that case turned out to be our friend because we had to get this stuff out so fast there wasn't a lot of time to pick over it and pick it to death and turn it inside out I was, um, I'll give you an example of, of the opposite of that. I was briefly involved in Fox TV's um, uh, Peter Pan animated series. I was, I was working for, I think, less than two weeks. And they brought me in as a, a um, staff writer. And I said, okay, well, well, shouldn't I start generating some story ideas? And they said, well, you, you have to wait until the Bible for the series is done. I'm saying, what Bible? I mean, it's Peter Pan. We all know who Peter Pan is, Wendy, you know, Captain Hook. Just just tell us, go, and we'll start writing. Oh, no, 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 no. We have this uh, writer that we've hired, and, and she has to finish writing the Bible, and it's going to explain everything to you. Okay, fine. Why don't we just come up with some story ideas? So that way, when the Bible is done, we've already got a whole bunch of story ideas. We can say, yes, this, this will work perfectly, and, and go ahead with it. And they kept fighting me on it. And eventually I, I, I um, you know, I was just basically shown the door. It's like, well, you know, you keep insisting on actually doing work here. And, you know, we're, we're more interested in creating this perfect whole. How many people remember Peter Pan? I didn't at all until you brought it up, honestly. There you go. To go back to the Marissa Fairborn thing, F Flint Dilly has confirmed online that, that, that she is the daughter of Flint and Lady J from G.I. Joe. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if he backdoored into that or if it was just a coincidence. I have to say in the Transformers episode Only Human, that was an explicit crossover bringing Cobra Commander in there, correct? Especially because they name-dropped the Synthoid technology? We did that a lot. We, we had, and I forget which episodes they were in, but there's every now and then you'll hear mention of the Voltronic Galaxiter. 
I don't, I forget who came up with that. It was probably Flint because it sounds like something he would have come up. But it was just this MacGuffin that we created, the Voltronic Galaxiter. And the next thing we know, it's the it's it's appearing everywhere, and we have to start editing it out because no, we can't have it here, we can't have it there, it can't be everywhere. But it popped up more than once. And there were a few other things like that. There were a few other incidents where, you know, we'd be doing something. Yeah, why not? Throw it in. You know, we can do it. We did a story, Once Upon a Joe. And this is one of those slap your forehead type things that, that you realize belatedly what you should have done. I had a lot of fun doing that. Then once the show was actually completed, I go, you idiot. It, it should have been the Joe's ponies. You should have told the story as the Joe's is my little ponies. And, you know, we could have tied it into my little pony that way, but didn't happen. So, well, since you said you, you know, on like G.I. Joe and Transformers and that you had to work with Hasbro and the legal department, mm -hmm. did they ever dictate either either direction what characters they don't want you to use because maybe they're not selling well? Or did they say, hey, this character's selling really well. Can you please put Zorana in more storylines? Or no, Zorana's not selling so well. We'd prefer if you use a different, you know, you use the Baroness Ye or something. Instead. Yes, yes, they did, but not obtrusively. When we first started doing the series, we would get a sheet of paper for, you know, we want the following characters and the following toys, you know, vehicles and whatnot in an episode. So you get like six characters and four or five toy packs or vehicles. I mean, and, and silly stuff like uh, make sure that there are sandbags used because we're selling G.I. Joe sandbags. And it's like it's a military show. You're tripping over sandbags all the time. You don't need to specifically point out, look, there's a sandbag. They did that at first for about like the first two or three weeks that we were coming up with episodes. And then they realized, you know, we've got some guys here that they're just using every tool they can get their hand on. They're using every character available. They're using every vehicle available. We don't have to dictate to them, you know, what has to be in this episode or that episode. So they backed off and they let us tell the stories as they kind of organically grew. We tried to keep tabs on supporting cast. I mean, obviously Flint, Duke, Scarlet, Lady J, Bazooka, Mainframe. There were a handful that were like, these guys are the most popular. We know that from the feedback. Focus on them. And then we had the rest of them that said, well, you know, Doc hasn't had a line in like three episodes. Let him come in and say something here. Just keep the characters circulating. Keep them moving around. Every now and then they'd come back to us and say the following toys are being taken out of the product line. So stop using this type of tank, start using this other type of tank. Or these characters have been taken out of the product line. I think it was Sparks, if I remember correctly. One of the, the one of the the original radio operator was taken out of the toy line. And we did an episode later on where we said, Yeah, he, he left G.I. Joe, he went into civilian life, he's now working for an electronics company. And we brought him back to that degree just to have, you know, to show that there was some continuity going on in the outside world with these Joe characters. Duke was going to be written out of the product line. And we, I, I said, well, if, we're gonna, if you're going to get rid of Duke, let's kill him off. Let's, let's have him die heroically in combat. This is a war story. We can, we can do that. And, of course, you know, then everything went wrong after that. But, you know, that was, that was the origin of Duke's death. You know, with the fact that he was no longer going to be part of G.I. Joe. Well, you had dealt with death on G.I. Joe before in the Worlds Without End two-parter where 
Breaker, Steeler, and Grunt find their own dead bodies in the alternate universe. Did you get any flack over that? I mean, I know it's technically the alternate universe, but you showed corpses. We got a little bit of flack, and Steve Gerber managed to tap dance that one past Hasbro by saying, well, this is, as you say, an alternate universe. We've never met these versions of those characters, so when we find them... You know, we're not, we, we haven't seen them being killed. We're only finding their bodies, their skeletons. And so our own characters are still alive and they're coming into this, you know, alternate universe to continue the fight against Cobra. And they were very nervous about that. I will say this, but they, they decided as long as nobody was being shown being killed on screen, and as long as the characters who were identified as having died in the alternate universe were shown coming from our universe into that one still alive, they went along with. Um, there, there were a lot of things not exactly like that, but things where, you know, we were kind of, I wouldn't say holding our breath, but we were waiting to say, well, are they going to react to this or are they not? And if they didn't react to it, we never brought it up and just kept going. Is that kind of the reason the bats were created? So you could actually just quote unquote kill Cobra soldiers, but well, they're robots, so it's okay. Yeah, that was, that was brought in because... The irony is this. People complain about how, you know, the inaccuracy of the stormtroopers in Star Wars, that these guys can't hit anything. The truth is, small arms fire is very rarely used by the military to kill enemy troops. Small arms fire is used to pin down enemy troops until you can hit them with explosives, you know, artillery, airstrikes, things like that. Obviously, you have snipers that are picking people off. Obviously, you have these firefights where people do get shot, but the amount of ammunition that gets expended to shoot a single, you know, enemy soldier, it's, it's enormous. I mean, you literally, you are expending more than the enemy soldier's weight in ammunition in order to kill them with small arms fire. <clears throat> and that was one of the things that I, I brought when I came in and, and told the other writers. I said, you're using, they're using these weapons these lasers, to pin the other side down. They're not using them necessarily to try to pick them off. They, they obviously will try to be as accurate as possible, but that's not the goal. The goal is just to pin them down until they can hit them with something heavier. And as such, we were, you know, the, the near misses and the stuff like that became a little more palatable because it was happening the way it happens in reality. At the same time, you know, somebody's got to get hit, and we could do, you know, episodes where a Joe gets an injury or something like that and he has to be patched up, but we, did, we rarely showed a Cobra soldier getting injured. And when they introduced the bats, the first thing we asked was, well, can we, can we blow these guys up since they're machines? Oh, sure. Great. Fine. And then, you know, we just started blowing them away left and right. But we had to emphasize they were indeed humanoid robots. They were not living people, you know, that were being killed. Speaking of that, were there ever storylines that you wanted to go back to, but, and I'll, I'll get to Deke in a minute, but with, with Sunbao losing the license, you never got to, like, uh, the whole link between Lady J and Destro being relatives, or the world's without end because they promised that they would come I, back to that alternate timeline and it never happened? I, I have to say this so you understand. When... Sunbow lost the license to Deke. I had no desire to go over and work with Deke. They didn't even approach me. 
I think one of the writers who did go and work to them did go and work with them indicated that uh, you know they they would they wouldn't mind if I came in and pitched some story ideas, but I would have to to uh, you know agree to a cut in salary you know for uh, you know my scripts and I basically it's like why should I take a cut in, in salary to work for you know an inferior animation company when you know I did my best work you know with a good animation company I'd rather I would rather go out personally you know on a high note so I I declined to even pitch to uh, Deke. Deke was it. Uh, the Deke episodes were terrible. I'll say it. Oh, oh man, anything by Deke was terrible. I mean, I'll, I'll say this: the very first Inspector Gadget series, when it was Andy Hayward and Jean Charlatan. Okay, Jean, they were trying to make that show as inexpensively as possible, but but Jean insisted on a little bit of quality. Okay, so the very first Inspector Gadget had its nice moments. But when Andy finally forced John out, at that point, you know, it was straight into the toilet. I worked on the Beanie and Cecil thing that they did. John Chris Felucci did a Beanie and Cecil with them. And it, it $50,000 per episode. I mean, it was just ridiculous, the amount of money that they were spending. Just tiny, you know, minuscule amounts. And we were told, well, write scripts where you can have, you know, people just reacting with bug-eyed expressions, you know, for like five seconds after somebody says something. Well, that's not animation. That's just a series of still drawings. I don't think they even lasted more than one or two episodes on the air. I think they got a couple of episodes on the air and just went, you know, this is awful. And we could we could play, you know, we could show organ music being played for a half hour and do better than this. I remember so. I remember when Deke took over He-Man after filmation. Yeah. Those were horrendous. Yeah. They had there's always somebody who will do it cheaper. In fact, that's what the joke around town was. DIC stood for do it cheaper. There's always somebody who will find a way to do it cheaper. Filmation had been a notoriously low-budget studio, but, you know, God bless him, Lou Scheimer at least realized if the stuff can't look great, it's got to have a good story. We have to have a story that's so compelling, you know, the kids will keep watching. Also a style. And, Filmation, I love the style. It might not have been mm -hmm. fantastic animation, but it was so stylized, yeah. it was still cool. Well, that's that's the smart thing that, that Lou did. He recognized that we have to have a very distinctive look, and he also recognized that you know you can you can get writers to do really good work if you respect them and let them do the good work. And we turned in some good episodes there. I mean, it was um, <laughs> it was tough. I mean, when you were working on an action adventure show, or in fact on any show at Filmation, they'd give you this notebook full of stock animation scenes. It'd be storyboarded scenes of just characters walking or talking or jumping and things like that. And they say, when you write your script, try to use as many of these scenes as you possibly can, because that's how they cut down on the animation. They, uh, they just use the same as animation again and again. The last four episodes of Fat Albert had no new animation in them at all. They just used stock shots with different dialogue. Well, with that... How, how different would, say, a script that you turned in, how different was that from what you actually saw on the air? Or did they 
pretty much take your scripts. It doesn't matter whether it's filmation, sunbow, whatever. How different was your script usually from what wound up on the air? That's a, a, a hard question to answer because it varied from studio to studio and it varied from production to production. And it varied according to the relationship you had with the, the artist. We, we could write something and call for very explicit, you know, detailed instructions. We want it to look like this. And if the production designer said, you know, I don't like that. I'm going to do this instead. You had no recourse over it. You had, you had no leverage to force him to change it back. Uh, one of the very first episodes I did for Filmation was for a show called, oh gosh, it was part of Tarzan and the Super 7. And I'm trying to remember, I don't, I'm trying to remember the name of this particular team. I don't think they were the Super 7, but basically it was a team of like, you know, generic international superheroes. Sinbad was one and there was um, Super Samurai or something like that. And I wanted them to fight a giant robot. And this was this was just before this was just as the very first of what they called the Shogun Warrior toys were reaching the United States. And I I took down to the art department, uh, you know, I took down these J Japanese robot toys or yeah, in one case I took a toy and I took, you know, Xeroxes of of the the characters, the robots from the mangas and the animes. And I said, this is what I want the robot to look like. And lo and behold, what do they give me? They give me this crappy Hanna-Barbera style robot. <laughs> that's not what I wanted. Well, tough. That's what we gave you. What are you going to do about it? This is a funny story, but they're, 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 the guy that was in charge of the color department at Filmation was colorblind. He, you know, he, he not. That seems oxymoronic, you know. It does. But you know what? That's why everything was blue and green. I mean, excuse me, purple and green. That's that's where his, that's what he saw. And and he wasn't a bad guy. He was a nice guy, but he just, I mean, I would, I would write scripts and I would say very explicitly, you know, whatever this character looks like, it isn't purple and green. And it's coming in purple and green. You know, that's what it was. You had problems like that in every studio, no matter what you were doing. With um, G.I. Joe, when we were writing scripts, for Filmation, for Ruby Spears, we were doing what was called directing on paper. And that is that the writer was breaking it down literally, shot by shot, calling camera movements, zoom ins, zoom outs, cross dissolves. The, the, the writer was literally directing it in the script. And then that would be handed to the storyboard department. And the storyboard department had to have a pretty good excuse why they didn't draw it exactly the way it was written. You know, sometimes they'd come back and just say, well, it was too expensive or too difficult to do the way it was described, and we simplified it. But otherwise, you know, if you said start on a, on a wide shot and move in close, they start on a wide shot and move in close. It was, you know, the writer told them to do it. That's what they did. When we got to Sunbow, the stuff had to go through the system so fast, we started writing master scenes. And that's like live action. You know, you, you just say interior Duke's office, you know, Flint comes in, they talk, they do this. Suddenly, you know, a Cobra paratrooper smashes through the window and, you know, you, you just describe it. But it's all, it's all described in a master shot. You rarely broke it down into close-ups and this and that and the other thing. It then went to the storyboard department, and the storyboard department 
would would do all the you know layouts and the storyboarding, the zoom ins and outs, and decide well this will be a close up, this will be a wide shot and whatnot. We just did not have the time to do it the old fashioned way the, to break it down. So as a result, we were writing scripts that were more like live action scripts. And I wrote a script one time where the um, the Dreadnoughts were on an airstrip and they're having an argument. And I think it's um, Zartan and uh, the other buzzer and one of the others, I can't remember. And they're having an argument and one of the Dreadnoughts doesn't say anything until about like two thirds of the way through the argument. And in my, my shot description, I say something to the effect of, uh, you know, buzzer sticks his oar in the water, meaning figuratively, he, you know, he finally chimes in on the argument. He finally participates in the argument. It goes to the storyboard department. It comes back in storyboard. All of a sudden, there is a creek running right across the airfield, and he's standing there with an oar that he sticks in the water. They took the it too literally. Just, exactly, yeah. You know, so told him, no, 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 that's not what that meant. That sort of thing happened a lot. At Ruby Spears, I knew the storyboard department really well. I hung out with them a lot. Yeah, a little flaky, okay? Well, it will be nice and generous. They were a little bit flaky, and, and a lot of other people just did not want to deal with them. And, you know, flaky is a magnet for me. So I was, you know, I was down there. I was talking with them, getting to know them and whatnot. You were having fun. As a res- exactly, yeah. As a result, when I would write stuff and do it and whatnot, they would make an extra effort to see, well, let's let's try to do it the way Buzz suggested. Let's try to, you know, do it so it looks good. Other people would write stuff, and these guys would just, like, roll their eyes, and it's like, oh, man, this is awful. But as they said, I was one of the few people that when they got one of my scripts, they knew he's not going to put anything in there that we can't draw. He's already thinking like an artist when he writes his scripts. That was, uh, you know, one of the pluses of of, of hanging out with them and, and getting to know them and whatnot. Is that how you were able to get certain in-jokes into G.I. Joe? Because, no, I don't know if this was supposed to be a connection like Hector Ramirez or Marissa Fairborn, but there was an episode where Mainframe's flipping channels. I think it might have been the Cold Slither episode. There's a news report, and there's a scene from Spider-Man and his amazing friends. So I'm like, does that mean Spider-Man's in their continuity, too? Or is that just well, an in-joke? Because that was, that was that Sunbow was as well. Because Sunbow was working with Marvel. And so they they figured, yeah, let's just throw that in. It's it, it was an in joke. Every now and then we would do something like that. I mean, I I can't remember every specific example, but you know there would be an, an allusion to something that had happened off off camera or off frame or something like that that uh, alluded to either another series or another character or even even toy lines that weren't part of. Uh, you know, Hasbro's, you know, Hasbro didn't own them. We might make a reference to them. One of the, uh, in the trader, I, I make reference to, you know, Owsley Chemicals and H.S. Uh, Thompson Pharmaceutical Works. That one went right past Hasbro. They did not pick up the 60s drug references at all. And okay, all right, it's there now. Well, speaking of references, though, what about the gore and sex and some of the, specifically the Sunbow stuff, such as Inhumanoids, Decompose was melting people's skin off, which I was surprised you got away with. And then, not obviously sex, but like Zorana and Mainframe clearly had a sexual relationship. Destro and the Baroness clearly had a sexual relationship, and it's very sensual in these. 
was that something you had a hard time getting past? Actually, not very hard. Romantic sexual relationships, it's, it's a case of less is more. It only takes a little gesture, a little expression, a little bit, and the audience starts filling in details for themselves. You know, with, with Baroness and Destro, it, it, it became like a Boris and Natasha type relationship played straight. And once, once that kind of clicked in our heads, okay, they're professionals. They're not going to be all over each other all the time, but there will be in their relationship. There's going to be this back and forth that people who have an emotional bond of some kind are going to have. We did that whenever we could. We tried to, to, to give the characters more depth and more resonance for that reason. In humanoids, we, we had the blessing in, in humanoids, and this sounds weird, but bear with me. In humanoids were colossally ugly toys, and they were expensive. If the average in humanoid had cost only as much as the average G.I. Joe, it would have been a hit with the kids, because the kids at the time, it was like 3 to $5 to buy a Joe, if I remember correctly. The kids could get 3 to $5 on their own, and they could buy a G.I. Joe figure. Inhumanoids were much more expensive. They were bigger toys, and the really big ones, the really colossally ugly ones, were like 20 bucks, something like that. Parents had to buy the toy for the kid, and the parents typically would take a look at it and go, mm, no, that's not coming into the house. We're not having that. So the toy line kind of stalled out, and it didn't, it wasn't, you know, it was, it, they could tell right away it just wasn't flying, and they, they decided just to kill it. But they still had the show that they had committed to do, and they had to finish doing the episodes. So we were kind of blessed with the knowledge, you guys are on a kamikaze mission. You don't have to worry about another season of this because there isn't going to be one. Pretty much free to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> so, okay. At that point, was it still the eight-minute episodes on Super Sunday or the full 22s? It was the 22s at that point because they had gone from Super Sunday, the eight-minute episodes, and – the reaction to the show was strong, but as I said, the reaction to the toy just bleh. And as a result, you know, once they had committed, this is kind of the similar thing that happened with Jim. Only, only with Jim, the the series was immensely popular. I mean, it was it. We actually had, I think, a stronger fan reaction with Jim than we did with Transformers and GI Joe because there was like a ton of boy-oriented action-adventure stuff. There was relatively little girl-adventure stories out there, and Jem filled that gap. Jem was hugely popular with, uh, with kids. I mean, they loved the show. They watched it a lot. But the doll was colossally ugly. You know, even Mattel, from a boy's perspective, those, yeah, I mean, like the She-Ra toys looked okay. The Jem dolls were, you're right, they were horrible. What had happened was is that, that Mattel had patented the dimension of, of Barbie, and you can't do a one-to-one -one copy of Barbie, because if you do, then you're going to get sued by Mattel. That's why Bratz has kind of disproportionate figuring for the characters. That's why Jem had these huge heads, huge feet. Most of the clothes wouldn't fit Barbie. None of Barbie's clothes would fit Jim. What, what Hasbro was trying to do was they were trying to knock Barbie out of the market 
on a head-to-head -head competition. The reason Bratz succeeded, even though Bratz ended up being owned by Mattel, the reason that, um, uh, what's what's the Teenage Monster Girls series? I'm trying to remember now. Monster High? But I think so, yeah. The reason that succeeded is they created a niche market that, okay, if, if you're a girl who's interested in goth, well, you want Monster High. You don't want Barbie. Barbie can't be goth, but Monster High can be goth. Bratz, you know, if you want the sassy type character, well, that's that's what Bratz is for. Hasbro was trying to go nose to nose. They were like Pepsi trying to knock Coca-Cola out of first place. And you, you just couldn't do it. And if Hasbro had said, we're, we want to be number two, we're, we're satisfied with being number two, they might have survived. But instead, they, they, you know, they developed the character, they came up with a really great story and whatnot for it but just the doll was ugly just colossally ugly even my daughters didn't want to play with it you know we'd get these big boxes of toys from hasbro you know the product lines and since i was the only person who had girls you know we had a couple of people who had um you know i'll take that back i was the only one with kids and my kids were were you know i had two daughters so okay fine i'll take all the gem stuff home with me all the my little pony stuff home with me and you guys can split the the transformers and joe stuff even my daughters thought it was an ugly toy you know it's just like, oh. you know they liked the car they liked the house they liked the accoutrements because barbie could use those but um yeah jim jim the toy line died but the show was so popular they kept it going a second series even after the toy had been canceled and it was just because it was it was getting so much attention, they could barter airtime. They could sell commercial time on it to other companies, promote other products. So they ended up financing it, you know, the traditional and the traditional commercial television way. They sold uh, commercial time on it. You typically had at that time, because I, I have to walk you through, if I may. In the 1960s, there was a show called uh, Hot Wheels, based on the Hot Wheels toys. And somebody complained to the FCC about it, saying it's basically a half-hour commercial. In fact, they were complaining that all the shows were half-hour commercials. But Hot Wheels, they could say definitely it started as a toy and it became a TV show. It did not start like Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear as a cartoon show and then become a series of toys. So the FCC ruled that you couldn't have a show based on a toy. A show could be based on a pre-existing literary property, which included a movie, comic book, a novel, whatever. But it couldn't exist, you know, it couldn't be based on a toy. Well, you jump ahead to the late 70s, early 80s, and you have the uh, Smurf toys are being imported as like tchotchkes and key rings and stuff like this. And the Smurfs are cute little characters, and they were, there were literally tens of thousands of these toys being sold. They were cheap. They were inexpensive. You know, they'd be like – they were doing all sorts of little things and whatnot, and they were just – they were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. Somebody said, boy, wouldn't it be great if we can make a cartoon show out of this? And someone else said, well, you know they're based on a Belgian comic book. And that was all the fig leaf they needed. They did the Smurfs. Hanna-Barbera Hanna did the Smurfs TV series, and when critics said, you're basing this on a toy, they said, oh, no, 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 look, look, here, Belgian comic book. Well, nobody knew about the Belgian comic book, not until after the uh, 
the the TV show was on the air, but that's all they needed. They needed that fig leaf. Well, the next thing that happened was that the people who did strawberry shortcake said, "Hey, literary, you know, literary property. Uh, greeting cards are a literary property. You know, we're basing this on the greeting card character." And then Mattel went to DC Comics and said, "We're going to do a toy line. We haven't announced it yet." Here are the characters, what they look like, and their names. Do us a three-issue miniseries based on this. And so they did He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which was a terrible comic book. Had nothing to do with the, the TV show, but it got the characters out there by name and by design. And so then when they do the TV show with Filmation, so no, 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 this is not based on, on the toy. Heavens no, this is based on the comic book. Same thing with Transformers and G.I. Joe. Hasbro went to Marvel. They did a Transformers comic. They did a, uh, a G.I. Joe comic. I don't know if you remember, but they were they, they the first G.I. Joe animation were commercials for the comic book. I don't remember were, those. I do remember the comic book. I did buy that first run. The first the the first G.I. Joe animation, they did like two or three commercials promoting the comic book. The whole purpose was to establish that there was a comic book so that if anybody said, well, you're basing this on the original action figure, oh, no, 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 this is this is a comic book based on the action figure. It's not the actual action figure itself. And they also wanted to show that it would look good in animation and get kind of basically prime the pump. And kids went nuts for it. They saw that and it was like, yeah, we want the comic book, but we want the animated show even more. It ended up you know, leading, you know, the, the dominoes started toppling. Eventually, I know Ronald Reagan deregulated that and got rid of that rule at some exactly. point. Exactly. They, they first, they got rid of it for syndication. And they basically said, well, you know, syndication, the, the local stations have the ability to pick and choose what they want on the air. So it doesn't matter where it came from. They're not being forced to accept something. If they really object, they don't have to take it. There may have been a couple of times where a local station just said, you know, we don't want humanoids or we don't want this show. We just don't feel it's right for us. And, and they'd turn it down. OK, fine. That's that was their prerogative. They had the right to say that once once that deregulation was taken away, then the last fig leaf vanished and everything you know that came out was based on toys. And you had toy companies that would be approaching animation studios. And this is kind of this is where um, not one hand washing the other, but but basically everybody trying to bootstrap themselves to the next level. A toy company would design a toy, but they wouldn't have the marketing muscle to get the toy out there. But they would approach animation companies and say to the animation companies, if, if you'll do the show, we'll get the show syndicated. And then based on that, we'll sell the toys and we'll do this and that and we'll make money. And sometimes you'd have these desperate animation companies that would take the chance and they would borrow money. They would ex overextend themselves to try to do these animated programs based on toy lines that did not exist yet. And then sometimes and, you wind up with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Sometimes you do. But the problem is, is that a lot of times I can't even remember the name of the show now, but there was a Canadian based show that was going to be based on a toy line. And, and one of the best scripts that I ever wrote was for this show. They were going to do like 40 episodes, high quality writing. I mean, they wanted this to be a step up 
from what had been done up to that point. The problem was they could never get the toy line launched. They ended up doing the first five episodes, and they released that as a miniseries, and then that was that. It came, it went, it vanished. As, as I said, I can't even remember the name of the show right now, <laughs> but it was, you know, it, it broke my heart because I thought, well, you know, this this really had a great, you know, character relationships in it. It was It was far more complex than anything we had been doing up to that point. They just couldn't get it up and running. And, you know, now we're seeing the tail wagging the dog. We're seeing people create stuff, not because it's a good story, but because it's got a snazzy visual. And then, well, then we'll put a video game around it. Then we'll put a novel around it or something like that. They're approaching, in my mind, they're approaching the creative process backwards. Is that kind of what happened with Visionaries? Because I loved Visionaries when it came out. I bought the toys. It only lasted, I think, 13 episodes. I watched it every week. I've got all of the commercially released VHS tapes, and hardly anyone remembers it. Is that what happened with that, being another Sunbow? Visionaries is an interesting story, because we were, we were told to come in for a meeting at Sunbow. They said, we're, we're going to be launching a brand new product. We want to show, you, show it to you so you can start developing ideas. And this is where I learned, you know, we're talking about bootstrapping and people doing stuff on basically a smile and a shoe shine. We come in to see what this great new product is, and basically they had an upside-down garbage can that they had painted gray, if I remember correctly. I might be wrong, purple or gray or some, some dull color, and stationed around it were all of these action figures, and they weren't G.I. Joe action figures. They were He-Man figures, but the chests had been carved out and holograms had been stuck inside the chests. But the thing was, they were not holograms that related to anything. It was just like novelty holograms of, you know, it could be flowers, birds, whatever. And these things were, were put inside the chests of these, these toys. And I'm looking at this, and this is just like the cheapest, ugliest thing that I've ever seen. You know, we, before the Sunbow brought the, you know, before the Sunbow Brass came in, you know, we were talking among ourselves, what is this? This looks ugly. And they came in and said, well, this is this great new thing we're doing. We're going to have these holograms inside the chests of the toys, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do that, and we want you guys to write 13 episodes based on it. Pretty much our reaction was, you have got to be kidding. This is just ugly, dumb stuff. Nope, we're going to be doing it, and you guys are going to be writing it. So, you know, at that point, it was, well, you know, we, we've got to make as close to a silk purse as we can out of the sow's ear. The fact that we were required to have certain a certain number of scenes involving the holograms in every episode. I mean, I, is, if I remember correctly, we had to have the holograms in the chest used twice, and we had to have the holograms on the uh, staffs used at least twice every time the character was, was in the show. And we just say, okay, allowing for that, allowing for the fact that we've got to jump through these particular hoops, what is the best story that we can tell? And we kind of fell back into Dungeons and Dragons mode. We just we just decided we'll we'll do this as if this is Dungeons and a Dungeons and Dragons product. We'll we'll just shoehorn in the hologram stuff, you know, whenever we can. And and that's why very frequently Early in an episode, they'll whip out the hologram thing just so we could get the obligatory, you know, hologram usage out of the way. 
I remember and some episodes we... where it wasn't even called for. Like the episode started with a battle and they're using it right off, you know, with no context. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was like we we have to do we have to use it twice per episode. Okay, start with a fight and then everybody shows their hologram and then uh, you know after two minutes of fighting, then the story can actually begin. We tried to do the best writing that we could for that. We tried to give a little more depth and resonance to the characters. We tried to, to have a little more fun with what was going on. We, we, we were not doing a parody, but we certainly had our tongues in our cheek when we were doing it. We were, we were all very, very much familiar with Dungeons and Dragons and the various tropes and ideas and stereotypes that came from Dungeons and Dragons. And we basically said, just taking those ideas, let's just have some fun with it. Let's just, let's see how far we'll, we can push it before somebody goes, oh, come on now. And as I said, we did this not to make fun of it, but to have fun with it, which I think is, is too often a distinction that is lost. You have a lot of people who are given a project and are told, you know, make a movie based on this or that. And their first thought is, well, I'm going to show everybody how dumb this idea is. I'm going to show them how stupid it is. I'm going to make fun of it. No, the people who love it don't think it's dumb and stupid. The people who love it grew up with it, and it means something to them. Don't make fun of it. Have fun with it. They will, they will accept all kinds of crazy, goofy stuff as long as they think they're having fun with it. But the moment you start saying, wow, you guys are idiots for even liking this, you know, you've killed it. One thing that I have to point out as a weird, weird criticism of mm-hmm. G.I. Joe specifically, did you guys buy sound effects from Lucasfilm or were those stolen? The obvious lightsaber effects for Zartan's chest and the obvious TIE fighter effects for Serpentor's uh, flying I, ch- uh, I can't, crown or I whatever? I can't answer that. I can't answer that because I wasn't in on the sound effects mix sessions. You know, I would sit in on uh, recording sessions for my scripts whenever possible. I supervised a couple of dub sessions where, you know, basically I sat there and said, well, you know, can we bring that character's voice up, put in a sound effect here where it sounds like we're we're putting the brakes on something. But I had very little to do with the direct, what do you call it, sound effects. There are sound effects libraries out there. And pretty much after Star Wars came out, and I think it was Brett Burt. I'm trying to remember the name of the sound effects guy now from Star Wars. But anyway, he, he gave like a tell-all uh, interview where he said, oh, yeah, the, 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 the lasers, I went out and I hit a wire on a, on a radio tower. And, you know, this was I, this and that I think I've read that one. Yeah, yeah. Except, except this was I, – I, there are numerous moments, and YouTube jumped all over this – of straight out stolen like you hear the tie fighter effect and then you can clearly hear as it was yeah. taken and then they they would show the that exact sound effect from star wars they were literally just taking sound pieces from star wars movies and i kept I, thinking how is that legal it probably wasn't and <laughs> and the thing is is that there's you you end up with situations where there's stuff that isn't quote legal but to go after it just opens a can of worms that isn't worth pursuing. I, I guess my biggest question would be, since I grew up on all of these things, Transformers, Visionaries, G.I. Joe, Thundar, etc., with DVD and a lot of these things coming out on DVD, even though Visionaries is not out in America and, mm-hmm. in, and Humanoids is, is incredibly hard to get and whatnot, 
are you finding that a new generation is discovering all of these things that you wrote back then, or are you stuck with the old angry men like me who yell, like to yell at clouds? Um, <laughs> I, I get a little of both. I had um, one of the one of the things that really made me feel old was a guy came up to me at a convention and said, you know, oh, I loved your stuff. I used to run home and watch it every day, you know, after school. And I said, well, I'm very happy to hear that. And he said, yeah. And and I got my teenage son hooked on it too. And I'm going. Okay, that makes me feel old. <laughs> this this was the objective. I mean, you know, I I look back and I'm I think to myself, wow, you know, was it really 30 years ago? But it was. It was 30 years. A lot of, you know, a lot of people have passed on. Steve Gerber's no longer with us. Um, Chris Lotta is no longer with us. Sunbow is no longer with us. Network television with syndication with these various production companies. You have wheels within wheels. You have deals behind deals. You may go in with the greatest idea in the world. You may have the greatest production company in line. But if, if the toy company or if the syndicator or if the local, you know, the network or somebody says, we have a deal with this guy and he has to get X amount of work, you know, no matter how good you are, we acknowledge the fact your show would be better. If if we don't give this guy a show, we still end up having to pay him money. So we're gonna we're gonna get a crappy show out of him rather than a good show from you. This is how Deke kept going. Deke had Deke was essentially a pyramid scheme. Do a low budget show. They they bid a ridiculously small amount, and then they would ask. Then they would sell two shows based on the strength of that. Charles Band, I mean, the guy that, I, I don't know if you remember, but in the 1980s, Paramount had this uh, line, Full Moon Productions. And these guys were cranking out low-budget sci-fi movies that were, were as a direct competition to Roger Corman. They were doing, like, the Puppet Master movies. Yeah, they were I, doing, I've actually, uh, I've, I worked with Charles Band. I, I love his stuff, yeah. And before that, he too, had Empire. But, but I love it, too. But the, the thing was, he was not as savvy a business person as Roger Corman. And he kept borrowing from the next film's budget to complete this film. And that's what Deke would do. Deke would put out their first show, and on the strength of that first show, sell two more shows. And the budget for those two shows, part of that would go to make to complete the first show, because the first show couldn't be done for the budget that they 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 asked for. Well now the next two shows are already in the hole, and they can't be done for that money. So they have to sell four shows to siphon the money off. And it was a constant pyramid skin scheme. And it was the same thing that eventually caught up with, with Charles Band. I mean, I loved I loved his movies, too. What was the, what was the time travel thing, the, the one with Tim Thomerson? Transfers. Um, but, but the problem was he, he kept outrunning his budget. You know, Corman... For all his sins and shortcomings, Corman could get the thing done on schedule and on budget. It may not look great, but it would be completed. Lou Scheimer with Filmation. It may not look great, but it would be done, and it would be done on budget. Deke deliberately had this pyramid scheme going, and as a result, they underbid everybody else in town. Now, you eventually got to a point where almost all the original animation was either being done by Deke or it was being imported from overseas. They would buy a foreign show and bring it to the U.S. And, and on the one hand, 
I like it because I enjoy these things, but on the other hand, I, I recognize this is not a good thing. You have all of these foreign anime shows that are cropping up on Netflix and Crunchyroll and a couple of other places, and they're getting these things for a song. I mean, they're getting them for like just thousands of dollars an episode, you know, and, and they it, it's because there are these deals within deals. If you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, you can't you can't understand why did they pick a bad thing when they could have had a good thing. And the answer is sometimes they don't have the ability to pick. Sometimes they, their hand is already forced. Since your hand is not forced, what have you been working on lately? What do you have coming up? Or conversely, where can people find you? Where can people contact Buzz Dixon? Well, I'm, I'm on Facebook. That's the easiest way to reach me. I do have a blog. It is buzzdixon.com. That's all one word, B-U-Z-Z-D-I-X-O-N.com. I have some books coming out. I, I had been doing a series of graphic novels um, about seven or eight years ago, and the graphic novel company had to close for you know uh, various reasons. But I kept the characters, and I'm going to have the characters continuing on. I have a graphic novel coming out, excuse me, strike that. I have a prose novel, a young adult novel coming out soon called Poor Banished Children of Eve, which I describe as a World War II Lord of the Flies with Catholic schoolgirls. I don't know I have, how you can go wrong with that description. <laughs> thank you. I am, I am working on a, a G.I. Joe Kindle book, a GI, a Kindle World's book. One of the things that I had been doing at... Sunbow was that I, I had wanted to do an episode that was going to explain the basically explain the origin of Cobra, at least the animated series version of Cobra. W would this be the famous most dangerous man in the world story? Yes, yes. I'm I'm doing it's going to be the the most dangerous man in the world, the lost GI Joe episode, and I'm basically doing the story as a novel, show what I was planning to do before they dropped Serpentor in my lap. And before we ended up going down the rabbit hole that led us to Cobra La, which I, I wish to apologize for yet again, because I when I conjured up the name Cobra La, it was a placeholder name, because I thought, well, surely their legal department will tell them you can't call it this because there's a novel, <laughs> Lost Horizon, that has a lost civilization called Shangri-La. You can't use it. Eh, they loved it. They went with it. They wanted to introduce new characters, and, and my feeling at the time was we shouldn't be introducing new characters in the movie. The pitch of the movie is the characters you love in a big screen adventure. You can't, you know, if you don't own it, you can't argue with the person who does. And uh, they decided to do what they wanted to do. I also have another uh, young adult novel coming out later this year called Rustlers of Rimrock, which is uh, about... Four teenage girls who save a herd of wild horses. That one is uh, will be out a little bit later in the year. I hope you guys enjoyed that. He and I talked about so, about movies and whatnot. I may use those parts of the interview at another time. For this Radio Drum special, if you have not, then you need to go and look up some of the work Buzz Dixon has done. It's in damn near every cartoon you can think of from the 80s. He worked on them for at least a couple of episodes. So I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to thank Buzz Dixon. I wanted to thank the audience. And I hope you guys liked this little Radio Drum special. We will be back with normal episodes with Cecil and Peter down the line. Have a good night, guys.
for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. Twelve O One Beyond Production. Visit twelve oh one beyond dot com for more great shows.